Four years ago, today, our church overwhelmingly approved a set of values and a vision statement that has charted the course for our church every day since and will continue to shape the direction of our church until the Lord shifts our focus or He returns. And so after four years, I hope you have ingrained in your head the truth that Blue Valley is a multiplying church that is establishing campuses locally, planning autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. And we have committed this particular Sunday aside every single year so that we can look back on what God is doing as we pursue our multiplication vision and to be challenged about where the Lord might be leading us as we increasingly become a multiplying church. And to that end this morning, we are going to spend some time looking at the multiplying efforts of the granddaddy multiplying church of all time, the multiplying church OG, if you will, for the kids present here today, uh, the church at Antioch. So if you would please find Acts 13 in your copy of God's Word, and as you are finding that, would you stand please as we honor the reading of the Word of God this morning from Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word, and you may be seated. The event that I just read about might not seem to be that big just by judging the words on the page, but it is arguably the third most important event in Christian history, behind only the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, the day of Pentecost, and then this prayer meeting at a church in a town called Antioch. The history of every Western world church can literally trace its existence back to this prayer meeting. I am not exaggerating when I say that Blue Valley Church owes its existence to what happened at the church at Antioch in that prayer meeting. But to get to that uh, that eventful prayer meeting and to really appreciate everything that is uh, happening, you have to understand the DNA that drove it. This church had a multiplying DNA. And you can see it if you narrow the focus from all of church life down to really just one person that is present there at this meeting. One man mentioned in Scripture who rarely gets a sermon dedicated to him, although we do, all of us probably know his name. And that man's name is Barnabas. Now, his given name, according to Scripture, was actually Joseph. But the early leaders of the church, the apostles, gave him the nickname Barnabas, which we're told in Scripture means son of encouragement. And everywhere you look in Acts, you can see why he got that nickname from the leaders of the early church. 
You see, when Paul, who had become the greatest missionary and church planner that the world has ever known, came to Christ, his background as a persecutor of Jesus' followers and the terror that he filled with Christians of that day caused the Jerusalem Christians to be suspicious of him, to say the least. They worried that it was merely a ruse for him to infiltrate the church and find out who was really a part of it. But Barnabas comes alongside him. He vouches for him. He introduces him to the Jesus followers in Jerusalem, and they accept him. Later, that same man named Paul refused to take a young man who'd kind of flaked out on an earlier missionary uh, mission with him and, and went home. Uh, and Barnabas said, we need to give this guy another chance. He's, a, he's an encourager. He's the son of encouragement. And, and Paul dug in and said, absolutely not. But, uh, but Barnabas also dug in and said, well, if if you can't agree to this, I'll take him and I'll, I'll go do missionary work with him on my own. And that's what happened. And that young man's name was John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. But of particular interest to us today, Barnabas was a key player in the establish, establishment of the church at Antioch. Uh, one of the catalysts that drove the message of the Gospel out from Jerusalem was the persecution of Christians that took place after the martyrdom of Stephen. We actually talked about how the gospel spread because of that martyrdom in, in the last November's Multiply message, which I'm sure everybody here has committed to memory and goes back and reflects on your favorite portions. I kid. I know you don't even remember we had one last year, but we did. Trust me. And we learned last year in Acts 8 how the people carried the gospel with them as they were scattered about the region. And Luke, the author of Acts, picks up that theme again when he gets to Acts 11, telling us that the gospel had continued to be carried on their lips as they got further and further away from Jerusalem and the threat that the Jewish leadership posed to them personally at that time. But at this point in Christian history, the belief that Jesus was for the salvation of all ethnicities was limited, to say the least. It was really just beginning to be talked about. And so we are told that as the gospel was being scattered about the region, it was primarily being scattered to Jewish audience. But there were some boundary pushers who began to wonder if the gospel worked for people outside of the Jewish religion who had no previous connection to Jewish culture. And as they experimented with that, particularly in Antioch, many of these non-Jewish people began to turn to Christ, which set off some alarm bells for the faraway Jerusalem church. I want you to go back a page and look at Acts 11.22. It says, the report of this came to the ears of of the church in Jerusalem, the report being there are people from a non-Jewish background, there are Gentiles responding to the gospel. That report reached their ears, and look what they did. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Something new's going on. We're not quite sure about it, and so let's send someone that we respect and, and who loves people, and let's let him figure out what's going on and then report back to us. And so this happens. Look at verse 23. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord there in Antioch. Isn't that great? 
I mean, he immediately discerns the Lord's presence among these new believers in this new movement in Antioch. And he encourages them to, you, to just stay doing what you're doing. And did you catch it? He did it because he was a good man, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. What better way for any of us to be known than to be known for being a good person who is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And in the heart of this good person, something was triggered. He knew immediately when he saw this new thing that God was doing that he wanted to be a part of it and that he wanted to be a part of it for the long haul. So apparently, he moves to Antioch, hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, moves to Antioch so he can continue to encourage these believers in this new thing that is going on. And when he gets there, he gets so excited. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go talk to a friend that I think might be just as encouraged as I am. And so in verse 25, it says he went to, Tar to Tarsus to look for Saul, who would become the apostle Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. He makes a round-trip journey of 250 miles, likely at his own expense, and he says, you have got to see what's going on at Antioch. And so he drags Saul with them, relocates, and they live in this town. And together, they begin to fan the flames of what God had started in this little church. Probably without knowing it at the time, Barnabas had begun to seed multiplying DNA among the church at Antioch. How? How had he done that? By leaving what was comfortable for him to join what God was doing in a town that he had no tie to whatsoever by making a huge effort of time and expense to travel to find Saul to convince him to leave what was comfortable for the sake of growing the kingdom. Barnabas was a man who had a mindset of sacrificing to reach more people for Jesus. There was a British missionary to China in the late 19th and early 20th century named C.T. Studd. And if this guy were alive today, he'd be one of the most tweetable dudes, or whatever they're calling it now. He'd be one of the most tweetable dudes around. And one of his most famous quotes is this. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Barnabas wanted to be where the action was, where the Lord was saving people, where the Lord was changing lives. He wanted to live within a yard of hell, snatching people up with the gospel before they, they walked through its gates. And he was willing to turn his life upside down and challenge others to turn their lives upside down 
to do just that. So it is little wonder that the church at Antioch was primed and ready when God began to move among them at this little prayer meeting to send people out in this time of worship and prayer where people tend to, at least in our time, just be self-focused and self-reflective. When that same Spirit of God began to move among them, they said, wait, wait, we can expand this elsewhere. It was the most natural thing in the world for them to do. Because they had this multiplying DNA. So what became of this prayer meeting in Acts 13? Well, the biblical record would indicate that around 20 different churches were planted over the years as the church at Antioch just kept sending people out. And these churches were the very first outpost for the gospel in Asia and in Europe. This little church with multiplying DNA changed the world, literally changed the world. But don't get that confused with not being concerned about their city, about the gospel advancing there. Typically in our time, we pit the two things against one another. We can either be a multiplying church sending people out or we can be concerned about our city. But they didn't do that. Another C.T. Studd quote comes to mind. The light that shines the farthest shines brightest nearest home. And that was certainly true of the church at Antioch. It became the epicenter of Christianity in the early centuries of Christianity. And, and uh, the early church leader, a man by the name of Chrysostom, claimed that there were over, listen to it, over 100,000 Christians in Antioch at the close of the 4th century. So this church multiplied in their community and around the world. And a good case can be made that this multiplying DNA was seeded by one good man full of faith in the Holy Spirit named Barnabas. Listen to me. One person. I've somehow grown old enough that I've been in vocational ministry for almost 40 years. Now I really need to sit down. And that's long enough for my naturally optimistic disposition to be informed by a healthy dose of realism. So while I am perpetually optimistic about our multiplication vision, the realist in me reminds me that for at least right now, a good chunk of us think of multiplication institutionally and not personally. In other words, we are thrilled to have planted two churches in the last four years, one in Martin City, Grandview, and another in Brazil, and thrilled to establish Mission Esperanza, our uh, Spanish-language mission over the last four years. And we shout hallelujah as we vote today to add a deacon to Mission Esperanza. But all of the while, our eternal dialogue is, I'm glad our church is doing that. I ain't going. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm glad my church is sending folks. But I ain't going. In other words, our church likes the idea of multiplying. But we lack the DNA at this point for our multiplication to be sustainable because we do not feel it at the personal level. It's very suburban to think this way. We like being a part of organizations that do good things. We'll give to organizations that do good things. We want the church to deploy. 
we personally don't want to deploy. But if no one is willing to make multiplication a personal thing, who will we ever send? So as we think about Barnabas this morning, there are two questions with which we all need to wrestle. The first, very simple, almost crass, what am I doing? What am I doing? Am I just a part of a church that is trying to grow the kingdom by multiplying, or am I engaged in multiplying? Am I willing to go? We, we've launched Overflow Church in Martin City, Grandview. Did you pray about being a part of that launch group? That might not be the right question to ask, though, because legitimately not everyone will go. So consider this instead. Over 75% of Johnson County is functionally unchurched. 75%. What does that mean? It means that if you went to 75% of Johnson County, they wouldn't be able to tell you where they go to church on Christmas and Easter if they go. Do you know the spiritual condition of your neighbors? They're probably in that 75%. Have you ever talked to a coworker about your faith in Jesus? Here's the deal, folks. If you haven't made gospel inroads with your next-door neighbor, how can our church ever count on you to even pray about mobilizing and going out with a group? And we will mobilize and send out another group bigger than the one before. In fact, my prayer before I retire is that a group of people will be raised up out of Blue Valley and not only leave Blue Valley, they'll leave Johnson County and go to another part of our nation where a church needs to be started. How can we ever pray about or expect you to, to pray about relocating to another part of the the country for the sake of the gospel if you don't even know the spiritual condition of your neighbors. You know who they cheer for and you know who they vote for, but you have no idea whether they're hellbound or not. Barnabas looked at what God was doing in the world to bring people to Jesus, and he jumped at the chance to be involved. And that eagerness to be personally involved was so contagious that it spread to a man who would be the greatest missionary and church planner the world has ever known. Paul would not be Paul without someone working behind him like Barnabas. What are you doing to multiply your faith? The second question is this, what am I willing to give up? Let's go back and, and look at Acts 13, and let's see what these people were willing to give up. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's their leadership. Really a dream team, if you stop and think about it. You have Barnabas, who was the emotional and spiritual spark plug of that church at Antioch, so important to it that it's not without accident that he's listed first. As we've seen, it's not an exaggeration to say that this church wouldn't be what it was without him. Next, Simeon. Traditional speculation 
is that this is the same Simeon who was conscripted by the Roman army to carry the cross of Jesus when he could carry it no longer. Can you imagine having someone with that kind of experience and stature on your leadership team? Next is Lucius. We know nothing about him. The early church fathers identified this man as being Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, and that may be true. It's just impossible to prove. He might also have been a relative of Paul. We just really don't know. But we do know that he was well known enough to the early church that all you had to say, Lucius was there. So this is somebody who is of standing. The first century readers knew exactly who was being talked about. Next is Menaean, who Luke tells us had been a childhood friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So he would have been someone of great social standing and potential political influence. And finally, there's Paul, the one who I've said already was primarily responsible uh, for the expansion of the Christian mission outside of Antioch. The man who was primarily responsible for taking all that was taught about and by Jesus and codifying it into orthodox Christian theology. There is your dream team, the most beloved person in the church, someone who may have been at Jesus' side on the walk to the cross, maybe Luke, a friend of the king and the greatest theologian and missionary the world has ever seen that's your leadership team at Antioch. And then, while they were worshiping and fasting, the Lord said, separate for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Take the dream team and take the two who are perhaps most important to you and send them to a place where they will not be loved like they are here and where they will not be treated like they are here. To put that in perspective, I want you to think about how much this campus loves Jonathan and Jamie Locke. How would you feel if the elders and the Locks felt that God was sending them to plant a church in Salina, Kansas, and to take John and Melinda Holland with them and have Robert and Susan House uh, uh, go to teach Sunday school and Mary and Jeremy Murphy to have Mary lead worship and Jeremy to, I guess, sit there. I'm kidding. <laughs> Those people are deeply loved by the Antioch campus. What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. There'd be roast Derek for lunch. The day that was announced, when you all went home from church, we laugh at that, but you know it, and I know it. You would be saying, Derek and the elders have lost their minds. Let me tell you something Pastor Micah at Ridgeview said when we were prepping this message about a, a month ago, and it was, it was so profound, I said, I'm going to quote you. In fact, it's so profound, it really ought to be printed on, on, uh, on, you know, and framed and, and hung up in every room on all of our campuses. Here's what he said, an exact quote. The greatest threat to our multiplication vision will be those who love Blue Valley more than the kingdom or who love their Sunday school class more than the kingdom. He's right, isn't he? I get how hard it is. 
and how the excuses can seem so reasonable. We have young kids, and we need the programming that a, a big church provides. Or at the other end of the spectrum, we'll say, those days are past for me. I'm just too old. But Alan and Mary Finley, with a young family, left the programming of a larger church to launch Overflow Church in Martin City Grandview, where their kids were essentially the children's ministry when they opened. Chris and Suisa Molson and Conrad and Donna Krieger, two retired couples from Blue Valley, left the church they had served and the people they had worshipped alongside for years to go plant overflow because they were open to hearing God say, go. Those are the kinds of sacrifices that will be required. And you say, yep, for Blue Valley, those are the kinds of sacrifices that will be required. I'm not talking about Blue Valley. Let me just say something to you that you may have never thought about. Have you ever thought about that every church that got a book deal in the New Testament no longer exist? Church at Philippi, church at Ephesus, church at Colossae. Have you ever thought about that? They no longer exist. There will come a day where Blue Valley, probably because we decided we weren't going to send out anybody anymore, dwindles to the point where we say, you know what, let's turn the keys over to someone else. We're shutting it down. Every church that has ever been birthed that isn't currently worshiping today. Every church that's ever been birthed has a life cycle where they're born, they live, they decline, and they die. So Blue Valley will one day not exist. I'm not talking about what Blue Valley requires. I'm talking about what the kingdom requires. And until we love that more than we love the church that we all admittedly love will never be the multiplying church that God is calling us to become. So in closing, let's drill down a bit. How do we build the DNA of multiplication in us? Well, obviously, on a day like this, one of those ways is to support that financially. We're less than $700,000 away from retiring debt. And when that money is freed up in our budget, we will have the resources within our budget to fund new campuses and new church plants one after the other. So pray about what you can give over and above your regular giving so we can get that knocked out by the end of the year. We've got the resources, I absolutely believe, to end it by the end of the year. In fact, if people could personalize our Multiply Vision enough, it could be gone today. And of course... Give to the regular budget if you aren't giving already. We always run behind in the fall. It's just the way it is. It's always been that way. We usually run between 72 and 82% of budgeted needs and get caught up in December. But this year, because of a hiccup that we had with our new website in September, we had the two worst weeks of giving maybe ever, at least since I've been here. Uh, and we're sitting at about 67%, not the 72 to 82% that we normally are. Giving was great in August, cratered the first two weeks of September, returned to normal for this time of year when we fixed the website, but we dug a hole in September. So if we did pay off the debt today, then almost all of the savings from no longer having to manage a mortgage payment through our budget would have to go to cover the shortfall. And here's the deal. We've got many people who avail themselves of Blue Valley's ministry 
but contribute nothing to it financially. We don't know who that would be. I mean, we never look. We don't know if person A gives nothing and person B gives a bazillion dollars. But we've clearly, just statistically, got a lot of folks that don't give anything. So if you're new and you haven't yet started giving or if you've just gotten out of the habit, start giving to the budget. And if you simply can't afford it, don't give anything right now. I get that there are folks on both campuses with young families and folks on fixed incomes, and inflation is killing you right now. And if that's you, and you legitimately can't do anything at all or any more than what you're doing right now, you pay your bills, you feed your families. There are plenty of us here that can sustain it until God gets you in a place where you can contribute. But let's just face it, most of us are not in a situation where if we give to the church, we're not going to be able to pay our bills or feed our family. It's that, well, I won't be able to sign up for the fifth sports team for my kids, or we won't be able to go on the big vacation that we had had planned. For us, the easiest thing that generally most of us can do is give. What we need most is the willingness to do the hard thing. We all, every one of us, need to get serious about the lostness that is around us. That's 75%. So let me tell you what I'm doing on the personal level. As I got older, it became time to address a need that was the result of a tax choice that I made when I was 23 that was going to require me at some point to get a part-time job, a real job, so that I could uh, qualify for Medicare Part A when I turned 65. I, don't even, I can't even imagine that, that, that that's my life now, but that's, I'm thinking about that. I'm the only one on staff that made that decision uh, when uh, they were younger, so it doesn't affect anyone but me, but it was something I needed to address. The elders knew about it and knew I, I didn't really need much, so a little over a year ago, they granted me permission to go out and find a part-time job on my day off to knock it out. So Easter week, I applied at Menards, Home Depot, CVS, and Target. And Target hired me, which means I began to work there right as the boycott of Target fired up. And one of these days, I'll tell you some really cool stories about people who are Christians who believe that an article of faith is to come in and yell at strangers at Target. But I will dis uh, disassociate myself from that right now. So, essentially, from May to September, I worked seven days a week between here and my Target job, and it was a grind for both me and Julie. Dur but during that time, I, I noticed that God's purpose for me being there had nothing to do with Medicare Part A. Because through the summer, I started forming some really cool relationships with much younger coworkers. And I began to realize that God had put me there to multiply the gospel. Now, it wasn't sustainable for me to work seven days a week for the rest of my life. But I also didn't want to give up those relationships that I'd started forming. So I asked the elders for permission early this fall to keep working one day a week on Friday when I'd be home by myself anyway because of Julie's job in order for me to continue to have the relationships with these kids that I had formed. The elders granted that permission. And since that time, I've shared the gospel with one young man right there at the guest services counter at Target. He came up to me, he formed a relationship with me, he came up to me, 
I'd talked to him about, you know, closed door at a job interview and a whole bunch of other things, and he came up to me, and he said, hey, you're a pastor, right? And I said, yep. And he said, can you tell me how to get closer to God? <laughs> right there in three minutes, I gave him a gospel presentation. He went back home, went to his church, professed faith, and got baptized. Three weeks from today, one of my coworkers is getting baptized here. There are other gospel opportunities coming, and I'd appreciate your prayers in that regard. That's my story. And the reason I share it with you is because sometimes I think it's easy for you to believe that the reason that I care about multiplication is because it's a church thing, because I'm a pastor. And I'm telling you that I'm giving up a day off and working eight hours in customer service, sometime to get yelled at, so that I can answer a question for a young man that comes up to me and says, can you tell me how to get closer to God? And answer a question for a young lady that says, can you tell me what it means to be baptized? I'm doing it because I'm Derek the Jesus follower, not Derek the pastor. Now, most of you already have a job that interacts with people in need of the gospel. And so your on-ramp to multiply personally is much simpler than mine. So shine brightly before your coworkers and share Jesus. Do what I'm doing and value your coworkers as image bearers, and those gospel conversations will come naturally. But take multiplication personally. Because let me tell you what God is preparing to do in our midst. He is preparing, I believe with all of my heart, a group of people who are going to become so convicted about the lostness of their neighborhood and the dearth of gospel-preaching churches around them that they are going to band together and they are going to start Blue Valley's next campus. In other words, the next campus of Blue Valley will be birthed as people answer the call to do something and commit to give up whatever it takes to grow the kingdom of God. I close with one final quote from British missionary C.T. Studd. Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets news of our departure from the field of battle. That's what we're called to. That's what we need to pray about. Let's go to the Lord.